this morning, would you please turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. The Gospel of John in chapter 2, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the two-thirds of the way into your Bibles in the beginning of the New Testament, John chapter 2. <clears throat> we are continuing in our series on the hard sayings of Jesus, and today's hard saying is found in our text in verse 19. Verse 19 reads, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now, today's hard saying is not like the other hard sayings. It's not a hard saying for us to do because it's not about us. It's, it's hard to understand. It's, it's, it's hard to know, in some ways, what Jesus is talking about. And to get understanding on this hard saying, what we need to do is take a few steps back and look at a wider context of this hard saying this morning. So let me read to you our text today, beginning in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. That's God's word for us today. Many people read this scripture and they'll, they'll say, well, that, that's about the Passover or that's about Easter. Or they'll say that's about money or that's about the history of the temple. Or maybe some would say that's about Jesus' anger problem. But I think it's about trust. It's about who we trust and what we trust. Most humans have a problem with trust. Most adult humans have a problem with trust. Most of us in our lives, we start off very trusting until someone breaks our trust, and then we have what psychologists call trust issues in our lives. So to grow our trust again, there's all sorts of things. We have create artificial exercises to build our trust, like the trust fall. Have you seen this, this sort of thing here where someone puts their hand over their chest, and they, I was going to do this with uh, the board members catching me as try to build my trust or something like that, and, and uh, you know, someone falls and someone catches, and then you, you I guess what you do is you, you build trust in that person. 
I don't know if you've seen this before, but I thought it, I just got such a big laugh. This is a viral video of someone doing a trust fall. Take a look at this. I'm not really even sure what that means. It's, it's just, uh, it's stupidity or great trust or, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really not sure what that means. You know, greater than our own trust issues, the thing that strikes me about this text today, and, and you may not really get it right as you read it, but the thing that really strikes me about our text today is that Jesus trusted no one. And I, and I think, what is it with him anyways? I, he seems so tender and affirming to so many people. You, you read through the Gospels, and, and he encounters children and women and men and, and people who are broken and outcasts and, and abandoned, and he treats them with such tenderness and, and affirmation he treated people, you read in the Gospels, and he treats people as so valuable that how could it be said he trusted no one? I think he's always surprising us. Jesus is always surprising us. We, we see in this passage, in this, in this text today, we see faithful religious church people, temple people, busy serving and preparing for a holy day. And on the outside, the people looked good. They're doing church work, church activities. They're serving God. They're helping people. But Jesus saw beyond what they were just doing. He looked deep in their hearts, and he called them out. Jesus probably looked at them and said, I, I look deep in the heart of every human being, and I don't trust them. In fact, if you want to follow me, Jesus would say, you shouldn't trust yourself. What we'll do today is we'll take a look at this text and we'll just make some observations about it. We'll structure it and make an outline and, and make some observations. But I really want to spend some time on you personally uh, viewing this text for your personal lives. We'll do that at the end. So let's begin. Right in the beginning, it, we can say there's a stage being set here. In verses 13 and 14, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So inside the temple court, a placement for prayer and other acts of worship, there were cattle and sheep and cages of doves and sellers sitting around them wanting to make a transaction. There were travelers who would come from far away for this holy day, this holiday, and they would trust those who prepared to exchange their money to the right currency so that they could make a purchase here. The outward reason for this setup was probably that the law required an animal sacrifice. And many worshipers would be traveling from a long distance and they didn't bring an, an animal sacrifice with them so they, they made these animals readily available for, for purchase from out-of-town guests. And you could say it was the loving thing to do for those church people to make the purchase convenient. 
So let's take a look at Jesus' response after we set the stage here. Now, what was Jesus' response? We find in verse 15. So he made a, <clears throat> a whip out of cords and drove out all these people from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle and, and the money changers and overturning tables. Now, Jesus obviously did not approve of what he saw. So why not? Why did Jesus not trust what was going on? What was the problem here? What, what matters here is what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, stop turning my father's house into a business, into a marketplace. Now, Jesus does not say that the sellers and the money changers are robbers or that the animals are defective or that the place is a place of prayer, though it is. He says that they've turned his father's house into a marketplace. And the disciples saw his incredible emotional intensity, his passion they saw. And he was using this homemade whip of cord ropes and freeing the, the cattle and dumping boxes of money on the ground, turning over tables. And so when the disciples saw this, they, they hearkened in their mind Psalm 69, verse 9, which says, Zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. And so Jesus was consumed with his zeal, which could be uh, defined as an emotional intensity, a passionate intensity for his father's house. And you could see after he did all this, you can imagine the murmurs being circulated around, you know, people kind of standing back and saying, hey, simmer down, Jesus, right? Hey, calm down. Relax. Jesus, chill out. Come on. So what made Jesus so angry, anyways? The, the, con the contrast he pointed out was between my father's house and a marketplace. My father's house means this house is about knowing and loving and treasuring God, the Father. In this temple, my father is the supreme treasure, is what he was saying. We, we sing a psalm, 84, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's the treasure of the temple courts. But that focus has been replaced at this time, we read in the text, as a focus of making money. And the anger is, is all directed at those who are selling and handling the money. And Jesus could see through the surface of this religious service they were doing, he saw deep in the activity of their hearts. In fact, if you look at verse 25, <clears throat> John writes, He himself knew what was in a man. So what did he see? He saw that this was a place of business. This was not enhancing worship. It was not flowing from the love of God. This uh, selling of animal sacrifices was not about worship. It was about the love of money, not the love of God. And all this was being used as a cover for, for their greed. What was the response to Jesus' anger? What did, what did they say? The, the response was this in verse 18. The Jews then responded, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Now this is not an encouraging response. It, it really isn't. Because it confirms their lack of trustworthiness and they're hiding something. It, it basically, they're, they're saying, What gives you the right to, to do this, Jesus? And Jesus gives 
what I would call a double-layered answer. He, he gives us a, a, one answer, but it has two different layers. Jesus answers him in verse 19. Uh, he says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. It's our hard saying for today. And they responded in verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? And then John comments, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. So what did Jesus mean when he gave this prophetic statement, this Easter statement, if, if you will, when he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days? Well, he was answering at two levels. In, in the first layer, or the first level, he meant you cannot be trusted. You cannot be trusted. You are destroying this temple, the, the, the physical building. When you desecrate the worship of my Father with your greed, you destroy the temple and what the temple meant. You expose it to the wrath of God because the temple will indeed be destroyed. And then, and that happened 40 years later when the Romans leveled it in 70 AD. So that's one level. But another level, Jesus was saying, your same materialistic deadness to true worship that destroys the temple that destroys me, Jesus would say too. Just like you kill worship in the temple by selling these animals and exchanging money with, and dealing with your consumerism and your materialism and your greed, you're going to kill me with that same attitude. Jesus would say, I and the Father are one. We're together. We're unified. And if you destroy his house, you destroy me. If you treasure money more than my Father... You will treasure my destruction, and later you'll buy it with 30 pieces of silver. So he's speaking at two levels. You destroy the temple, the building, and you destroy this temple. He was saying, my, my body. So what does Jesus mean when he says, in three days I'll, I'll, I'll raise it up again? Well, the same two levels. He, he says, I will raise up my body in the resurrection after three days. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. See, he lays his life down for our sin, and he takes it up again. And when they destroy his life, he builds it again in three days. But there's another level, another layer of meaning here. The material temple, the physical temple um, that would be destroyed... Jesus builds again in three days in the sense that he now replaces that physical temple in Jerusalem and be, he becomes the new place where everyone can meet God and have a relationship with God. Remember what he said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He, he says to her, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. True worshipers will worship the Father in, the, in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. He tells this woman, there's going to be a time where you can't go to the temple to worship God, but there's going to be another temple created. In other words, authentic worship will not be attached to Jerusalem in, or any other place. It will be in spirit and in truth, and it's attached to Jesus. He's the new temple. Jesus says, I'm the new temple, and when I raise my body from the dead, everywhere 
in the world, people will come to the Father through me. So this is the end of the exposition or the observations, we could say, of, of, about this text. So let's take a look at a personal response, your response to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Let's view this text from the eye of your personal application. The first thing that Jesus would say is this. He, he would say, I don't trust you, but I love you. And I'm not, I'm not trying to paint Jesus here as a sort of a mean, cynical Savior. Just a truthful one. In the 23rd verse of that text, it says, At the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that Jesus was performing and believed in his name. Now the crowd size in Jerusalem at that time, there were, historians say, about 320,000 people crammed in that little city. Maybe three times the amount of people that were residents there. And thousands saw the signs he was pre performing, and they believed in his name. Thousands. But then we read in Acts chapter 1 later, after Jesus' death and his resurrection, in that upper room, how many were there? About 120. From thousands of people who believed in his name, really when it was said and done, 120. And I think this teaches us a principle, and the principle is this. The human heart loves personal power, not truth. The human heart, we love powerful things, but the truth, not so much. We love signs and miracles, and we love the power to make it through our difficult days. We love help for our problems and, and strength for our success. But when it comes to reorienting our lives so that we live for Jesus, we're not so sure about that. You could say it this way, that the people wanted Jesus to be king of the world, but they really didn't want him to be king of their lives. And, and Jesus saw this in the temple business people. He saw in the thousands that followed him, he said, I love you. I don't trust you. I, I love you, but I'll still, and I'll still lay down my life for you. Jesus says, I, I don't trust you, but I love you. The, the second personal response we can take a look is, is Jesus says, don't trust yourself, trust me. See, the root of the human problem is self-trust, or maybe people call it a God complex. The Bible refers to this as living in the flesh. And, and doing this, this God complex is the inclination of the whole person to be God. We want to be God in, instead of being under God. And, and what, what it means to be God is, is sort of looking at the creator over our lives. He created us, and so he's God over our lives. And we have a similar thing going on sometimes in our lives. I think many of you are very creative, <clears throat> and some of you are artists, and so you get a lump of clay, and you sculpt something, and you make a beautiful piece of of art, or maybe there's a blank canvas and you paint something beautiful, and, and you create that. Or maybe on another level, some of you are fix-it people or construction people, and you loved going to, to build that house that we're going to take over to Mexico. You, that, that, you're in your element, and I saw so many of you yesterday. You're just in your element. You have a tool bag thing and a hammer and, and you're just, you just go at it. Or maybe you like fixing cars and, and you want to rebuild a car from the ground up. 
And so you, you take a, a car body and you put your engine in there and you paint it and you upholster it, you do all that, and you're creating something out of nothing. It's, it's your pride and joy. And still some of you are, are I'm on this level more, I, I, you, you create things by, by being a chef, by cooking. And that's more of my level of creation. Give me a big slab of meat, a, a wonderful tri-tip, and I'll season it, and I'll rub it, and I'll make it sweet, or I'll make it savory, I'll make it spicy, or I'll make it mild. I'll put it in the crock pot, I'll in the oven, I'll put it on the grill. I'll do what, it's my piece of meat. I'm going to create it the way I want to create it. And we do that, don't we? It's our artwork, and this is the way we're going to do it. It's our car. It's our remodeling project, and we are God over that. No one tells us what to do. No one tells us that we must cook it in a certain way. We must paint using these colors. We must build the engine the way someone else wants to build it. And when it's all said and done, someone will look at that piece of artwork and say, that's so beautiful. And, and we feel good about that. Someone looks at that car. You take it to a car show and guys walk around it and look at it and lift up the engine and, and look inside of it and they go, wow, that's a muscle car. And you go, yeah, I did that myself. We cook a piece of tri-tip and we serve it up for dinner and we slice it and, and the family and the friends gather around and we eat it and, oh, how did you do that? It's delicious. We do the same thing with our own lives. Living in the flesh, a God complex or self-trust is, is like this. We want to run our own lives. We want to set our own standards. And we want to live for our own glory. This is what it means to live in the flesh. We want to run our own lives. And we want to set our own standards. And we want to live for our own glory. And when we live in the flesh, when we have this God complex, when we trust ourselves we live as though we're the creator of our own lives. But only the creator has that right. But underneath the surface of our lives we, is a desire to run our own, putting ourselves in the center, being the boss of me. That's what we want to do. You see, Jesus says, he says, don't trust, I don't trust you, he says, but I love you. Then he says, don't trust yourself, trust me. The third thing we can pull out of this is Jesus says, I have not come to tell you what to do. I've come to tell you that it's done. That's really what he's saying here. It's, I haven't come to tell you what to do. I've come to tell you that it's, it's all done. Remember the, the, the people asked Jesus, what sign, what is the sign that would signal that you're the Savior of the world? And Jesus said, we'll tear down this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And Jesus shows us that he is completely unique. He's different than all the founders of every other religion in the world. Many people will say, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, that's, that's the same. It's the same as the Muslim. It's, 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 it's the same as all these other religions. It's the same as Buddha. Really, it's kind of the same. You guys are all doing good things to try to make the world a, a, a better place, right? It's all the same. They'll say things like, Christianity is nice. It's basically the same as all the other religions and beliefs throughout the world. And when someone says that to you, you tell them, no, it's wrong. You're wrong. See, Jesus Christ doesn't come to say, 
Here are the principles. Here's the sevenfold path. Believe them and you'll be saved. Jesus Christ does not come and say, here's the rules, follow them, and you're in. Jesus Christ doesn't say, here's the time card. Fill it out, put in the time, and I'll love you. Jesus says, I did not come to tell you how to save yourself. I came to tell you that I've accomplished your salvation. He, he doesn't say, here it is, do it. He says, here it is, I've done it. It's done. So we don't practice Christianity. There's not a practice of Christianity. We don't serve to gain God's favor. And we don't work to get our salvation. When Jesus died, he paid our debt. The punishment we owed God for trying to rule our own lives, to self-trust. And the second we believe that he died to pay the penalty for our sin, the second we say that he accomplished it by tearing down the temple, his body, and the resurrection, is the moment the power of death is legally broken and we are adopted into the family of God. And at that second, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us to renew us day by day. You see, I hope you see that Christianity is different than every other religion. You know that every other religion panders to your self-trust by laying down principles and rules and to practice and rules to follow and time to put in and money to give and possessions to give up in order to reach heaven. Every single other religion panders to your desire to be God over your life. And because we have the good news, Jesus already accomplished all of this. We can be free to love. And we can be free to give. We can be free to proclaim, to reach out, we can be free to befriend the poor and the oppressed and the broken and the enslaved and the abused and the abandoned. And so we do that. And so we, we bring things to replenish the supplies of Deborah House in Mexico, a house that is a refuge to women who've been abused and families that have been abandoned. And so we don't do that to gain God's favor. We do that because we're free. And we do that. Because someone needs that help. And we can proclaim the good news to those people through replenishing those supplies. And, and so we, we don't even know Daniel and Avelina Cervantes, the couple that's going to get this house that we built yesterday. We don't even know them. We see a picture of them. But we, we're so free to love and to give and to build and to transport and to erect and to hand over the keys to that family next weekend. We're free to do that. We're free to feed the hungry in North Gardena twice a month. We do that freely and lovingly. We're, we're free to, to help the poor get their laundry, mat, laundry done at an outpost in a laundromat in West Torrance. Who would have known that there would be a church meeting at a laundromat in West Torrance? But there is once a month. And so we're free to do that. We don't do it to get God's love or his favor. We're just free. 
and the reason that we will reach out to our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and everyone else in the South Bay is that Jesus Christ has done it. We don't have to do it. He has changed my life. And I know he has changed yours. We're free because Jesus said, I've done it. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Amen.